You're listening to the Queensland Theatre Quality Time Podcast. Let me set the scene. In a patriarchal justice system where it's her word against his, Susie Miller's award-winning prima facie is a rapid-fire one-woman tour de force indictment of the legal system. Joining director Lee Lewis in the studio today is Sheridan Harbridge, who has embraced the enormous role of Tessa, a ruthless defence lawyer at the top of her game who finds herself, unfortunately, on the other side of the bar. We hope you enjoy this lively chat between two passionate performance makers. Hello everyone who's listening to another Quality Time with Queensland Theatre. I'm Lee Lewis, I'm the Artistic Director here at Queensland Theatre and I'm sitting here on the lands of the Yuggera and the Turrbal people. Stories have been told on these lands for tens of thousands of years and we are in the process at the moment of putting another story on this land. It is Prima Facie by Susie Miller, a beautiful playwright who's written a story about one young lawyer's fight with the legal system, which at this point in 2021 does not take care of victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment in a way that we could. So in the last couple of years, there have been huge conversations happening around Me Too and around and around this very issue of consent and representation and the problems of legal systems around the world. Anyway, Susie Miller, who started life as a scientist, evolved into a, a lawyer and became a playwright, brought all of her life knowledge together to write this one-woman show, which stars the one, the only, the fabulous Sheridan Harbridge. Sheridan Harbridge, welcome to Quality Time. What a (laughs) delight to be here in Brisbane. I fled two lockdowns to be here. (laughs) So the feat of being here makes it feel even more special. Well, it is special. It's a really special work. It was special when we made it back in 2000 and... When did we make this? (gasps) Was it 19? 19. You know, there's a really f- weird thing with memory now because of the block yeah. of year that evaporated Pre-pandemic. last year. Pre-pandemic. So, yes, the play won the Griffin Award in 2018 and then we put it on stage in 2019. And the first day of rehearsal was the first day of the Jeffrey Rush defamation trial. And it was a really complex room to be in. Not a big room. You, me, Kim Scott, the stage manager. Your Paul, cats. My I cats, it was yes. around your kitchen my table. My k- kitchen table. <laughs> Paul Charlier, the composer, sound designer. Trent Sudegeist was in the room, lighting lighting designer. And the wonderful Renee Mulder, who designed the extraordinary set and costume. <laughs> Sorry, a little bit of an in-joke. When we had the design presentation, there was a black box, and in that black box was a little black square, and that was it. Furious! I wanted my wig. I wanted my. I wanted my robes. <laughs> you wanted fly. You wanted to fly. You wanted yes. wings. You wanted assistance. Uh, I wanted exits and entrances. No. So the play is very simple. It's about. It's the most simple statement play I think that could be made at this point in time about the needs of women in relation to the legal system, and. I think that was the conversation with Renee Mulder right back at the beginning was how do we not get in the way of this play? How do Mm. we not clutter it? How do we not distract people from the clarity of purpose inside the language? I think that same idea filters through to the acting as well. Like such economy and rigour is needed to just tell the story and not to sort of 
flourish too much. I get that more and more the more I do it. Yeah. yeah. It was scheduled to have a West End opening and a New York opening, not with myself or Sheridan. <laughs> also furious. <laughs> also furious. <laughs> that happens. That happens with plays. We make them and then, especially plays like this, where you need the person on stage to be plugged into the culture of the audience. You let it go. You go, wow, we made this. It's that successful that other people on the other side of the planet want to make this. And you wish it well. And you sit and drink a bit of champagne and go, we could have done it so much better. Bottle of whiskey. And I have to say, good luck to them finding something someone as fabulous as you, Sheridan. And for, uh, yeah. for everyone who's seen the play, they will agree. It's a 90-minute, well, sometimes up to about 94 minutes. 93 depending. today. Just, just did a matinee. It was 93. Okay. It was good. So there's a little bit of play in time, but it's one act. It's straight through. It has a pause, an entract, if you like, in the middle as we gather our thoughts before it moves on to the second half. The first half shows us the life of a, a very successful young barrister as she climbs the pyramid of success in the in the legal community. She's on, absolutely on top of her game and she is enjoying success. She's, she's All of that training comes together at a certain point and, you know, she's winning every case and she's solid and she's she's. Just to, she gets invited to move up into a different different chambers with even better QCs and silks, and you just go. The, there's something quite wonderful about that successful woman at the beginning. Yeah, she, it's just so tasty. I know that's a funny word to use, but when I'm doing it, you go, oh, usually you're seeing a lot of the female roles aren't women succeeding and soaring. It's them always going through some sort of trauma, which sort of happens later in the show. But you get half of the play is getting to watch a woman just kick goals, be amazing and be really pleased with her success. And that's a treat. It's a real treat. So we see this woman at the top of a game and then something happens to her, an assault happens, and then there's this question about what then? And that was the conversation with Susie when she won the award because she'd written the first half of the play, but she actually hadn't written the second half. And as two women, we sat down and I said, well, look, we know that this happens. We know the statistics. We know that it happens a lot, but we don't know what happens after that. What do I do now? And that's one of the questions that she asks herself in the play after this happens to her. What do I do now? And I think we, we, we might not want to look at it, but I think that question of what are my options if something like that happens to me? What can I do? Do I take it to court? Do I not take it to court? And the statistics are so awful about the number of the number of people who do report and don't, and then the number of successful cases as, a, as opposed to not successful cases. There's not a lot of argument for for seeking justice. Can we even achieve justice in a situation like this? Anyway, Susie wrote a second half, if you like. She went away and thought, as she does, as the brilliant woman that she is, and she thought and she came back to me and she said, I've, I've written another half. I was like, whoa, I was just thinking some edits. And yeah. <laughs> but she'd written this other thing which was really about the court case and what it is to take your case to trial. And that for me is when I read that second half, I was like, we are totally doing this play because that I hadn't seen before, not from a woman's point of view. And while I haven't lived the experience in the play, I've been pretty close to it with a lot of friends and being a part of that conversation and, and then going, I haven't seen this. And watching a, an Australian playwright put it in our words, mm. that was so exciting. Yeah. So, And it had to be you. Yeah. It had to be you. <laughs> when I sent the script to you, it was coming down to the deadline of programming and all of this sort of stuff, and we had to find someone who could do this play, who could do it, and I sent you the script not knowing you were. <laughs> I was in LA at an ice hockey game, and I had to read it at the game, which was very sort of discombobulating. But 
by the end of the first page, I just was so enraptured by Susie's language and the character because in that first page, that's when she's just, she's in the courtroom and she's she's talking the audience through how the game of law, the game of doing a, a cross-exam, the game of sort of toying with the witness on the stand. And it's really joyful and cheeky and triumphant. And I went, I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you had to do it with no... Uh, set except for a chair. You can't even have a prop. I'm like maybe a handbag in the second Where's half. Where's my table to bang on? No, I object. I object. <laughs> actually, there was a lovely moment in a Q&A or a subscriber briefing actually where uh, a gentleman said to you, you're taking a courtroom drama with one person? Yeah, they How do you do that? that? How do you yeah. do a courtroom with one person? And I suppose that's the magic of this particular piece of writing and your performance is the magic of transformation. And there's not a lot of writing that asks actors to transform anymore. It's true. People are typecast and you play a version pretty close to yourself. And But the chance to play many, many roles. Now, you see, that's one of the reasons I wanted you for this as well because <laughs> yeah, some of you will have seen Sheridan in some of her other roles where she changes many times and has many costumes and many I like wigs. a funny hat and <laughs> some glasses. <laughs> and Simon Phillips has used you extensively for that skill set. That's true. Yeah. Um, but you need all of that all of that skill, don't you? It's musical theatre, it's cabaret, it's stand-up mm. comedy, it's drama. You've got the whole thing and there's no one with you. What is that like as an actor? Um. I mean, it's a great game. I mean, the terrifying part of it is that only you can be at fault when it goes wrong. <laughs> I don't get to blame someone else when it all falls apart. But it's a really good game. And I've really noticed, because I've had two years between the seasons, it was meant to be one, COVID happened, it's been two. And even in the two years, I've changed so much as an artist. And I feel that so much in this season in a really lovely way of my, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I had significant time off with COVID that it's almost like I think my skills percolated a little bit more rather than going dusty. I think they settled. And I feel... In this season, all those other characters have become much richer, I reckon. I think in the first time I did it, it was the sheer act of getting it on stage took up all of our well, at a certain point, brain time. Well, yeah, at a certain, certain point, it was like it. learning it. Yeah. You've just got to jam all of those words inside your head. And it is a fast 90 it's minutes. very fast. And this time, I've really invested in all those other characters. And I think it's a lot more fun for the audience to have those dynamic shifts. But I feel really much more richly... I, I'm creating the other, the barristers, the Crown Prosecutor, they're all there. Even and the stenographer. The stenographer. And I think that's added another 3D dimension to the show in this season, which is a pleasure. And I also, I'm really feeling, I think, what am I now, six shows in at this theatre, the Billy Brown, and I'm sort of getting this feeling, which is really nice, that a lot of the audience hasn't seen a work like this before, and that's a treat. I've never had that. I've done a lot of festivals. I've done a lot of work in Sydney and Melbourne, and those audiences have had a lot of international work come in. They've seen a lot of different flavour, and this one feels like people aren't used to a kind of pared-back, multi-character, one-woman show, and also a political show, which, I mean, I don't know enough about the Brisbane landscape, but I feel like this is packing a punch that's really surprising the audience as they take it. And that is a gift to feel as an audience member, that you're giving them a work of art that actually is lighting up a different part of their brain they haven't got to play with. That's real nice. Yeah. Look, I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's my favourite audience in Australia. 
Brisbane Brisbane audiences are really rich and complex, and there interestingly there are a lot of lawyers in our audience. Mm. It's like when you when you see your profession represented on TV or something yeah, like that. Yeah. You go, that's not what it's like. Yeah, <laughs> you have a, long, a conversation with it, or if it is what it's like, you go, oh my god, it's just like that. Yeah, and both ways you're in a dialogue with it all the way through. And I think given not only the the idea of women in the law, but the law itself that is examined in this work with a case, but also the bigger question of law in Australia. I think there are a lot of brains sitting in there in the audience going, yes, but, oh, yeah, sure. And there's that lovely thing that that a fiction can do. And this is fiction. It's very, it rings true, but it is definitely fiction. It is a distillation of many experiences that Susie had as a lawyer with people that she worked with. So she knows the world deeply, but it's not her own personal story. She is in conversation with all of those people and I love the I love the engagement that that brings. The thing that the way I was useful to her is that I know nothing about the law. <laughs> so you've got this genius lawyer sitting in a room with having written this play and and this person that actually doesn't know anything at all and I would I was my job in the rehearsal room while Sheridan was learning all those lines and going what about this what about this was to go oh no I don't understand that. Mm. And to go oh no what does that mean? But if you say it that way then no I don't get that. So Susie was crafting the law language and you were crafting the performance language so that me, first audience, could understand it. So what's beautiful is trusting now that you don't have to know anything about the law to then be able to ask real questions of our law. Yeah, I think that's so the strength of the work is that she almost holds the audience's hand and takes them through this sort of step-by-step what a bog-standard trial is like, especially for sex assault. And for GP who have never been in the court system, it's actually quite shocking how the witness is treated. I don't think people know that that's the type of questions that they can be asked, that they're up there to be sort of torn apart, torn to shreds. That's the very, that's the very reason the lawyer is there to point out the holes in everything they have to say. I mean, anyone can go yes. and watch yeah. in a courtroom yeah. to see what's actually happening. They're public spaces. I mean, you did that when you were preparing yeah, for I this. Yeah, I watched a lot. It was, and I was actually, I was really shocked of the stuff that I was allowed to sit through, the personal information. There was one guy on the stand and they were reading out sessions from his psychologist that had been admitted as evidence. And I just couldn't believe that you're allowed to sit there. As a member of the public, you could walk yeah, in and, and listen. and that is evidence against him about his state of mind. And then on the flip side, I think for lawyers coming to see it, I think they're quite stunned that GP are hearing this and having a problem with it because it's something they've been trained to accept as this is how you find justice. This is how the law has to go. And then they're in a room with a bunch of people going, what the hell? How can you say that? How can you do this? So I think it poses a question for them too of, should we be accepting this behaviour? Yeah. There are some moments where the audience all react the same way, those magic moments, and especially some of the comedy in it, because there are some very funny moments. Alice, she's one of my favourite characters. <laughs> yeah. um, you're the, the sad, sad office worker in the same chambers who's just not, things aren't going well. She's not at the top of her game. <laughs> but I love the moments when the audience comes together, but then I also love the moments where you feel the audience going out into their own life experience, where you go, oh, that's awfully close to that. I know when, in making the play, it made me rethink some things in my past, what some of the coping mechanisms that we have to push trauma away mm. and go, oh, no, it's not as bad as I thought it was. And, and it actually made me ask questions about the way I've remembered my own life. And I think for a lot of people, permission to think about small traumas 
in other ways has yeah. been really interesting, confronting. But again, it's that funny thing about what a what a fiction can do. Yeah. It can sneak around your resistance to journalism. We don't trust the newspapers anymore. We read them, but we put it at a little bit of distance and know that that's not the whole story or I don't know all the facts, so how can I make up my mind? Yeah. Fiction sits in a different place. You have all the facts that you need. Either you don't think the play is good or you can make up your mind and it can make you curious about the actual real world then. So for me, the success of this play is the, at the end when people don't leave the theatre, when they sit in the yeah. seats and go, oh, okay, I don't even know where to start thinking about that. Yeah. And success for me, the cups of tea we sell afterwards <sighs> where friends have come to the theatre together and they you can't just go, okay, then wave your hand and jump in your car and go home. You kind of go, maybe we, do you want to get a cup of tea? And it's not even people necessarily talking about the play but needing to talk. Mm. And I suppose that's what we missed so much last year was a theatre being the mechanism for our communities. Sometimes it's the only way I see some of my friends. We have a subscription to something and I know I'll see them then. And we catch up and then see the play and then we're talking about that and then things are moving, well, before COVID, moving mm. really fast. And without that mechanism, there were friends I didn't see for a year. Yeah. But now that that's back, a play that we can really talk about and want to talk about is a fascinating yeah. thing. Yeah. I love every show when I say the final line, the lights come down and there's always this little sort of orchestra of this noise mm, that comes right yeah. through. And it's really quite, or every time I get quite shocked by it, that there's a vocalisation like I finished speaking for 93 minutes and they need to make a noise to absorb what they've just seen. Or it's like I think they're letting me know that they've taken in what I've just offered. It's a really beautiful exchange. Yeah. And then there's that funny thing where you've become so big for us with all of these different characters. You've taken up our entire attention for 90 minutes and then strangely... The clapping starts and you turn back into yeah, this single a, person. A fairly short woman <laughs> <laughs> on a stage. <laughs> there is something, there's a little bit of theatre magic inside the form. And, you know, I think uh, my ambition in this company is to tell big stories. This is one of the big stories on our planet at the moment. It might be told with one woman and a chair. <laughs> Very important chair, by the way. But one woman in a chair. But it's huge and we don't have a solution for it and the play doesn't offer one, but it actually offers hope. Mm. And I feel that that's important at the moment. I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine runs a theatre company in um, New York and the commissioning forms, because they have forms because that's what they do, but across the top of the commissioning forms it says, no apocalyptic plays, please. And it was a really interesting thought that they put in my head back. It was three or four years ago. And even more so today, I feel like one of our responsibilities is to encourage the thought of a possible future rather than sink in despair at the impossibility of a future. And I think in looking at our audiences, our young audiences, but our older audiences as well, that, that thing of, look, things might be complicated. We might not have solutions, but we are an extraordinarily inventive species and our job is to actually believe that there is a way through this. Yeah. I'm always at pains to say in press that this show isn't devastating because, it, of course, if you're sort of talking about what happens in the show, you can imagine it's a sort of traumatic and sad thing to watch. But it's actually, it's quite, it's hopeful, it's a call to arms and it's triumphant. It's Susie 
posing a question to the audience to going, oh, actually, did you know you've got the ability to change this? Yeah, there's that great line and it says, the law is organic. Mm, and it plants a seed it, it? in the public's mind that we can change the law. And it's not easy to change. Yeah, we made But we actually up. made it up. Yeah. It's not something that's come to us from on high. It's not a religion. It's not a sacred text. It is something that can and should evolve to reflect the, the values of the society that it is taking care of. And I love that that thought is there. It's really interesting. Their friends have been coming and bringing their, their 16, 17-year-olds who are thinking about law as a profession. And it's been quite a bit of a shock to them to kind of go, oh, yeah, right. I didn't realize that that's what it would be like. But they haven't been put, interestingly, they haven't been put off doing law. Those final thoughts of like, they're like, oh, so if that's what I do, then part of my job will be to evolve it. Mm. You go, yes. Yeah. That's what a judge's decision is, is bit by bit shifting the law to reflect our values now. And you go, that's the work. If you choose to take that on as a, if you go into the law, that's your work. That's that's the job you take on in society is to make sure that our law is reflecting yeah. our values. And you go, and if it's not, then yeah, there's a fight to be made by the lawyers. Look, you can't do a play with a lawyer in it without someone in a Q&A making a joke about lawyers. But for me, for all of this play being about women and a celebration of women, it's also that question about a celebration of lawyers. Since doing this, I've got a much deeper respect for the weight that the legal profession carries for us and how closely they look at how we behave towards each other. Mm. It's a terrible understanding of humanity that lives in the law. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of in the prior seasons, and we're going to have it here at Brisbane as well, but we lots of lawyers do come to the show. And always they would ask me at the end, so what does Susie want to change? What does she want? They had to know, mm. as opposed to the rest of the audience who sort of go, oh, wow, we can change. They're like, what does Susie want? <laughs> How does she think this can change? And Susie in the past has always spoken about we should be investing in um, restorative justice and mediation, things that serve the victim rather than always just trying to put someone in jail, which is a difficult thing to do and the burden of proof is enormous, but looking at this more restorative justice. And I would say that and you'd sort of see them go, hmm, yeah, bit glaze over a bit. But now, fast forward two years, the New South Wales Attorney General is talking about enthusiastic consent. But also, when I was jumping back into this and sort of reading about things online, it was the, the lawyers, the Bar Association, all talking about, we should start looking at restorative justice. That's what people want. And in two years, that has changed. In two years, Susie's now not the eccentric playwright in the corner going, we're going to change everything. Now... Her ideas, and it's it's come from more, yeah, a lot it's not of the her movement. ideas. It's a lot of people that have been talking about it, but they have yes, been the f- push to the fringe. But now we're finding the words in the centre of the conversation, and it's that wonderful thing. What comes first? The can you think the thought without the words? And once you start saying the words, the first time you say enthusiastic consent as a woman, you kind of go, oh, yeah, but I'm not a man, so I don't know what it's like to say it as a man, to go, what's the idea of enthusiastic consent? Mm. And to celebrate that as an idea and say, how do we build that in our young people, an idea around sexual relations being something you want to enthusiastically consent to. That's not an idea that was there when I was growing up. And I think for the lawyers, that that question of restorative justice, being allowed to say it without being pushed to a fringe. Yeah, yeah. 
I remember, I don't know what was going on at the time. It would have been when I was like in high school perhaps, but people were talking about consent and enthusiastic but consent. But darling, but I'm much older than you. <laughs> and I remember every, all the commentators, everyone just going like, oh, what? Like, do people have to ask and you have to say yes? Is that what the sex that's going to happen? And it was a lot of people going, how can we be ruining the mood? Adults should be able to do this without there being rules. And now as we talk about enthusiastic consent, it has shifted so much that when they started talking about it, no one pushed back with that commentary. Now we know so much. Post Me Too movement, post so many women really bearing their soul and telling these awful stories for the public, we know that the best way forward is enthusiastic consent, an expectation of either a yes or either a no. It's not weird anymore. Yeah, it's, giving it's and receiving an and sharing enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big signals. Because it turns out none of us are very good in, in nuance. Yeah. It's not a space for yeah. that. It's exciting, though, to think yeah. of what teenagers are absorbing now. Yeah. The next generation whose these laws will be seen in a very different light and consent's going to be seen in such a different light by younger people because of everything they've been exposed to now. And it's an exciting idea that... Like you've always said, you want this show to become really dated. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, you know, by all means, you know, 50 years from now, I really want a theatre company to read it. It'll, it's a book on a shelf to read it and go, oh, it's such a period piece. <laughs> you know, people thought like yeah, we that. don't have those problems. We anymore. don't have those problems. We've got other problems. Do we need to do the play? I'd love for it not to be needed. The sooner that day comes, the better. You know, we'll, ha- we'll need other plays to get other things done. But to not need this play... And I don't know if in my lifetime that'll be the case, but Mm. I'd like to think it is. And yes, you're right. Two years ago, I would have said not in my lifetime, but that's okay. Part of our job is to hand the baton on. And now I'm going, you know, I might be a bit old. Yeah. (laughs) But you go, that question of change being possible is something that is a newer idea in the last two years. Not finished, not done. Yeah. I know I've been more sensitized to it because of the play and maybe that's something that we do too you know another drop in the ocean yeah we conversation look about it yeah. true i think what's also really strong about what susie's done with this work is how it's sort of not a bunch of extraordinary events and a bunch of extraordinary people i mean she's a really good lawyer she's not superhuman though she's really good and the actual events that unfold are really so I don't want to say, you know, like perfunctory, but they're not. Ordinary. It's not, yeah, it's so ordinary that it's very, I think a lot of people might go, oh, maybe that happened to me. It's a really everyday sort of event that takes place. And in that way, it's so fascinating to think that one event that could mean nothing to say that man, but that has completely pushed a whole person's life off the course that they wanted to be on to completely change their life. And she just happens to be in a position where she can articulate what's happening to her because she's from the law. But you think of all the people who they get steered off course and they never know how to articulate what's happened to them and they never know how to find a way back. Um, I think the strength is how sort of every day this awful sort of assault is, is what makes it a really interesting piece of political theatre. Yeah. And it is interesting when you make a thing that's, you know, people go, oh, do I want to go and see that? And you go, yeah, you do. You actually do because you don't want to not be a part of this conversation. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we've built up some resistances to that word, that, that phrase, political theatre. And I go, well, look, every piece of theatre is political, whether it's maintaining a status quo or questioning it. Mm. And it depends on what you want on a given night. This is an extraordinary way in on the bigger global conversation about the rights of women and and the voice that we have at the moment, the female voice that is evolving. Look, it's not everywhere. I'm incredibly aware of the white lady privilege I set with with this play in that, not white lady insofar as the funeral parlour. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's, it's in the cities of a handful of countries in the world where we've got the time and the luxury to examine these questions. And... I don't pretend that the politics of this play or the voice of this play is available to women everywhere in Australia or women across the world. But in the question of women's rights, you go, uh, we are culturally at the pointy end of of articulation and developing language that can ultimately generationally be shared in other countries and in, in other cultures and across our own our own land, you know, that's, oh, I forget the analogy of all the boats rising, you know, the tide level goes up and all the boats rise together. Do you know, we're contributing to very new language that will ultimately lay the foundations for other places to have this, this same conversation. But it's a very thin skin of privilege, the time and the money and the education and the access to the conversation mm, yeah. um, to be able to be in the nitty gritty of language. Yeah. When you're talking about a war that you might be living with, and those are wars in Australia as much as anywhere else, when you're just really trying to feed your kids, yeah. do you? Yeah. is there time or space or even a capacity to actually yeah. talk about I remember thinking complex that language. last year when we were trying to sort of piece back together the tour that fell apart in the pandemic and there was sort of a nearly a moment where it could have happened last year and I do remember saying to our wonderful producer going, is anyone going to have the capacity to listen to this story with what what's happened to everyone this year, what everyone's lost? I thought it's going to be doing the show and the sort of women it's trying to speak for a huge disservice to be doing it in what was a different war going on in the country. Mm. And especially at a time with in the media, really for me, just hearing about the rising rates of domestic violence and all this sort of stuff, you go, is this the play that we should be doing? But this feels like coming back to it now. And I say that knowing that, you know, Victoria and, and Sydney lockdown, you go, it does feel though what living with COVID is, is that we can't let go of the other things that are important. Mm. That's the shift that I found is that people coming back to the theatre are going, this was important before COVID and it's still important. Yeah. And how do we balance that all up with, you know, without losing our attention? But I don't have to pay attention. I just automatically wash my hands for 30, minutes, 30 yeah. seconds now. So it's not taking all of my attention. And now this play is going, no, there are we still need to keep going yeah, on all the other things. Yeah, I think we've got to come back at the really, you know, despite border shutting again, but it's the right time where people sort of had reclaimed their brain back to be able to think about other people and not just themselves for a moment, which, of course, we had to. We had to yeah. s- Knocking on every yeah. piece of wood that I have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it's true. It's true. I mean, we're going to be living with COVID for longer, and the question is how do all the other issues not go away? It's like the hospitals yeah. and, and people with other change. illness and climate change, all of these things. Yeah, yeah, how do we reclaim these conversations and check in with where we are? And 
Um, yeah. So it's been an extraordinary journey with you over the last couple of years with this play. And I suppose I'm going to take this particular opportunity to publicly thank you for it. <gasps> what a delight. from being around the, the dining room table, pulling the words apart and piecing it back together, and then feeling the impact in the audience, watching people be impacted by it, watching young women, and then watching a, a judge in her 70s. Uh, look back over her career and wonder about how much things have changed. Mm. And they have. Yeah. It's been an extraordinary journey with you in this play. And I do look forward to more. I don't think we're at the end yet. <laughs> yeah. hasn't been to Melbourne yet, has it? <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're sitting in Melbourne, why don't you why don't you contact your local God, your we local need theater? This play. <laughs> we do actually. And it is that funny thing, that funny thing about Australian writing written for us, by us, in our voice, for, for things that matter to us now. An American writer can't write this for us. Mm. American writer couldn't write Tessa. There's a version of Tessa that lives in America. She's a, very, she's a different woman with a different cultural background, but, you know, just little little moments in the, in the play, that words that Susie offered you that you've picked up and turned into mum and sun-kissed. Yeah. You know, sun-kissed yeah. is a joke in America. Yeah. You know, it doesn't read the same way. And I, yeah. I've just loved Our watching. class is so different as well, and there's a lot of that in the show, which is a real fun stuff for me because that feels similar. To, that's where the story is similar to me, the sort of code-switching class code switching in education and, you know, having your intelligent voice and then your bloody home voice. Um, <laughs> that I understand. And I think those that's a particular Australian thing of the, the subtle code switching that we all do. Oh, no. The code switching happens in every country, but America's codes are not our codes. It just sounds very different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to read them. You've got to be in a country for a long time yeah, before you can decipher the codes. But, yeah, it's, it's all of those layers and I've just loved it. I've loved working well, thank with you. you for having me. It's a gift of a role. And we just remembered the other day that Lee directed my final work at NIDA when <laughs> I was a student. <laughs> that is true. So you've been there from the beginning, oh, the very, very, very beginning. And I've been causing trauma to your dad <laughs> all, all along. <laughs> <laughs> Keep doing shows that my dad really doesn't want to sit through. I, I've had in this season a lot of people reach out to me on social media more so than sort of any other role I've played. And that's been really, really lovely to go. What I get to do on stage is transcending right out into the heart of people and you don't get those roles often. So it is such a gift and I'm very grateful that I get to play it. If you enjoy Sheridan Harbridge's performance... <laughs> You should also check out her work in Brisbane Festival, which is 44 sex acts in one week. A very different <laughs> show. <laughs> it's another political comedy. It is. A political comedy about climate change written by David Finnegan. Yes. Now, you were in the Sydney production, which I was able to see for like one the one weekend where the border was opened. I happened to be in Sydney and I happened to go along and see it. And it made me laugh in a way that I really needed to laugh. It was very funny. It was very sophisticated. It was very cheeky and there was fruit involved. So <laughs> what's not very to like about that? But now you, because of this, you're stepping out of it and you're going to be directing that. because I'm directing it this time. Yeah. yeah. I was supposed to be directing it last time, but my producer best mate Beck Massey got me drunk and said, you should be in it too. And I went, I can do that. <laughs> Nightmare. Don't do it. 
Don't do it. I mean, you have done that before. Yeah, and it's because it you directed you. Nosferatu, didn't you? That's, yes. yes. Yeah. Which so, I think you made me act in as well. Yes. <laughs> like, can you be in it? Yeah, I can yeah. do that. Yeah, I I'm, can act and I'm direct too old and write for this now. I'm yes. too old. It's just you're not too old at all. <laughs> no, it's an interesting thing for me because we celebrate. Our, we've got a history of celebrating our male wunderkinds who write and direct and act and do all of that. And I could name you probably six straight away uh, if you ask me. I'm not going to. I'll give them another platform. <laughs> but that thing of the, the artists who had the capacity to do all of that, you are one of them. Yeah. Writer, Which director, actor. There's not lots of chickies who do it. Well, I think there are women who do it, but yeah. we don't celebrate it yeah. in the same way as we talk about it. We don't talk about you as a Wunderkind, but you actually have been. Well, I will now. Yeah. I'll talk about myself like a Wunderkind. <laughs> Maybe that can be your next show. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that can be called Wunderkind. Wunderkind. I don't know. Don't lock I it don't in. know. Commission but it. Thanks, QTC. Commission? Okay. <laughs> this is how it happens. This is how things happen. It happened with you before. I think it was, there are spare two weeks in the theatre who wants yeah. it and you went I do I've got this show show I've got with this idea for a show with a vampire yeah so no look that that question about the skill that it takes to do a one person show I mean it takes everything mm. it takes the writer the director the, the the performer in you to shape this thing I mean I just sat on the outside and really just drank <laughs> cups of tea and just pointed <laughs> do it stand over there <laughs> that's not true that's not true um but a role like this, though, allows us to see skill in a way that the... That's why we love the trapeze at the, at the circus. We look at that and we go, that's so beautiful. I could never do that. Yeah. And it's true. There's a little bit of don't try this at home. This, is a, this is a professional yeah. exercise. People all the time are like, how do you do that? I go, I don't know. I just face the front and I open my mouth. And it happens. And say but the words mostly in order. Not all the time. But that's what the fabulous Kim Scott stage manager is there yes. for. He keeps a very close track yeah, of you. I can see him flicking through the script. Going, that's Where not is she? true. That's not true. It's <laughs> not true. It's, in fact, it's amazing to me how precise and consistent the work is, given the, the difficulty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that comes down to the work around me, actually, of the music and the lighting. Mm-hmm. How beautiful is Paul Charlier's sound? So beautiful. I think they are as rhythmical. I don't know if it's chicken or the egg, what came first. I either started doing this thing and they built around me. I think the marriage of both At is very... At a certain very... point, it becomes a conversation. Because yeah. I know that he was he was intrigued by the idea of score for solo voice mm. so that there was a bed yeah. and then absence of bed of sound, but yeah. how you did that. And then he was, interestingly, we were having a very big conversation about Hamilton and David Diggs and David's work with clipping. Yeah. And the videos, he showed me these videos of his work and this extraordinary rap poetry and the dominance of that, but then this sound, this complex mm. uh, complex sound that sat underneath it that didn't fight the voice, yeah. but that was wound around it. And I was like, okay, that'd yeah, be great. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll yeah. Do, yeah. And interestingly, he kept working on it through COVID mm. because he's that kind of brain. Yeah. And there is a complexity in it now that was with built on yeah. what he right. Saw. I just thought the speakers would. I could hear. Well, things. they're slightly yeah. different, and there's that thing of when you yeah. move a, a work around to different spaces, you, you have to yeah. you have to ad- ad- adapt the design for the space so that it lives in that space. So the speakers are above the show for the first time, as mm. opposed to 
behind and below you. So the sound is different and we do hear different things, but he's also worked on it. Yeah, right. So you see, you're hearing an evolved yeah. composer response, knowing what that vo- yeah. what your voice is. Yeah. I'm sorry he couldn't be up here I to know. hear his yeah. work wind its way around yeah. you. But I, when I jumped back into it to start learning it again, I was really, you know, like just the first time we did it, and it always happens with new work, the feat of just getting it up. You know, you were, we're all ruined, but happy it's happening. But this time coming in with just a clarity and the confidence, knowing that this work really had sort of shone. I was so struck by how elegant the script was and then struck again when coming into the theatre of how elegant the music and was. And that moment where we heard the first cue. Do you remember the first yeah. cue? We all went, we went oh, oh, God. <laughs> and, how, yeah. and actually how integral the sound is to our memory of the yeah. work. And then when we were in the theatre here and just because where the speakers were, I couldn't hear a track and I could not work out what scene I was in. I couldn't do any lines. I was, uh, There's something uh, missing. It's uh, not uh, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turn it up. What's happening? Turn it up. Yeah. yeah. It, it just attached. The music and, you know, and the lighting states are so are built into the words now. It's like a dance piece or a music piece to me. Yeah. A dance piece on a very small stage. <laughs> dance, dance stage. <laughs> Which you do fill extraordinarily. And it, I have to say it's very beautiful seeing it here at the Bill Brown because the shape of the space is very similar. It's bigger, but it's similar to where it started at Griffin, that corner, beautiful mm. corner space. But then I also loved it when it was in Canberra. Yeah. On that big playhouse stage. Yeah. And I love the scale. And strangely, the Bill Brown allows for both. Yeah. It allows you to be very big and very small, Mm. which is quite wonderful. I'm still learning the space. Yeah. It's a lovely one for me to, and this play is a lovely one for me to actually know the audience and the space better. So, yeah, it's, it's lovely. I love watching it in there. Yeah. It's a pleasure to do it. It's a good, it's a good theater, isn't it? Great theater. Yeah. Because often theaters are, you know, old, tomato can factories where which is great we've made it work bits of stage and audience and dressing rooms are just crammed into spots but this place has had the opportunity to be deliberate (laughs) yeah so there's beautiful details about it that make it easier the acoustics are lovely the dressing rooms the showers are (laughs) lovely i shower here not at home it's lovely (laughs) it's uh yeah it's a real pleasure yeah. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the Queensland Theatre stage. Thank you, Sheridan Harbridge. Thanks for this quality time. <laughs> Look at what you do. <laughs> Just sell it, sell it. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter at QLD Theatre. You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au, to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We can't wait to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye!